Hello and welcome to another episode of Not Too Deep. I'm your host, Grace Helbig. Very thrilled and excited for you to listen to this episode with comedian, actor, uh, new chicken owner, Matt Walsh. Oh, you might know him from Veep or from years, decades of, of improv comedy or from the billion other uh, hilarious comedic films that he is a part of. Um I loved talking to him about his foyer into comedy. We talk about psychology. We talk about uh, digital media obsession. He's got a new movie called Unplugging Out, uh, co-starring Eva Longoria, where the, the couple takes a digital detox. We talk all about that. Also, if you are obsessed with Veep, they have a podcast. He and his co-star, uh, Timothy Simmons, called Second in Command, where they are re-watching episodes of Veep and uh, recognizing... Uh, the complexity and the whole world of it that they might have not seen while they were making it. So uh, I enjoyed this conversation thoroughly. I had a beautiful time. I might have gotten a little obsessed with the fact that he owns chickens, but that's on me. <laughs> Otherwise, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Uh, Matt Wolf on Not Too Deep. <laughs> Okay, Matt, I have so many things to ask you about and talk to you about. First thing, on this beautiful rainy day in Los Angeles, I'm curious, what what's your first thing you do in the morning when you wake up? Do you have a, a routine? Do you have rituals? Do you wake up with a certain zest to your day or is it different every day? Lately, I've been... Uh... I started during the pandemic raising chickens. So my routine in the morning is to get up, maybe make a cup of coffee and then uh, grab some scraps for the chicken, uh, chicken groups, and then go outside with the dog and uh, open up the chicken coop and throw some feet out and make sure they got water and open the gate. What was the impetus to get chickens? Was it just the pandemic or had this been something you had been thinking about in the background for a while? Um, I think the pandemic made it, made me think about it because I don't know. It was like a hobby thing. Like I, I, I baked sourdough during the pandemic. Somebody gave me like yes. a sourdough starter. So nice. <laughs> I think everyone reverted back to like basics and also in the weird world where like grocery shelves were empty and you couldn't find things. It was like, I don't know how it popped into my universe, but I thought of, I have friends who've raised chickens and I like, we have room, we have like a decent sized yard. So yeah. I just thought about the idea. So I built a chicken coop. Whoa. Uh, it wasn't great. It was like a shanty. <laughs> uh, <and laughs> a my humble coop. <laughs> yeah. And my wife wasn't super excited about it. So then we bought a nicer version of a coop, which is now what they live in. Is there a learning curve on housing and raising chickens? Yeah. I think it's keeping it tidy. Rats love chickens, so you got to keep mm. everything tidy and uh, cleaning up after them, getting some hay. Uh, I think keeping them alive. You know, we lost a few <laughs> over the years. Oh, uh, dang. When they're little, the dogs, a couple, our dog went after some of the little chicks, so that wasn't um, great. So yeah, learning, <laughs> learning how to protect them when they're little, little. Um, and then just the routine of it all. Yeah, they, they thrive seemingly like have found a home here and keep an eye on them. And there's no like predators. Our our yard's pretty like walled off, so there's no like coyotes or cats oh, or dogs that that roam in. So it's not too hard. It's a, it's a fair amount of work. Yeah, 
but in general, and then you get to use the, you clean up the hay and you can use that for compost on your trees. So it's kind of like a little farm. Wow. Yeah. Biggest little farm. A real return to nature. A little bit. Very cool. I love that you're saying this with like a Peloton behind you. (laughs) Well, that was my wife's idea, which I said, sure. And I've only used it three times in the last year and a half. I have never used one. What's the experience like? It's good. It is a good workout. Like I, I wish I did it more. Okay. But uh, it's good. It's like a 20 minute, 30 minute, 40 minute workout, depending on what you you select. I've never done like a live class. It's always like a video. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, it seems a bit overwhelming, but probably ultimately very rewarding. Yeah, it is like any workout. If you just show up, you always feel better <laughs> at the end of it. But I've only done it three times. So my wife is a little more uh, regular. That's great. Um, okay, I kind of want to go back to the beginning. I, I'm so curious about your whole kind of journey into the world of entertainment, creativity, comedy. How did this start for you? I like your backdrop on the wall, by the way. Is that a painting? What is that? It's a mural done by these two comedians slash artists called Very Gay Paint. And it's a very gay mural. They call it the Gay Eye of Sauron, um, which Um, I am a huge fan of. I told them that my aesthetic was sophisticated Nickelodeon set. And I think they (laughs) truly delivered for me. (laughs) I do. I like the color and the pattern. Really nice. Really nice. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, So my creative journey... Um, how did it start? Is that really the question? How did you find, I mean, did you find comedy first? Was there something like a seed planted when you were younger? Was there some point in your life that you realized that like, this is the outlet for you, that the arts were the world that you needed to be in or belonged in, in some capacity? Yeah, I think my interest in comedy was always there. I always was good at remembering jokes and, uh, could like recite jokes once I'd heard them. And I liked the structure of them perhaps as a little kid. Mm -hmm. And then I think as I got older, I realized uh, certainly the power of like making people laugh was attractive to me, like in a big family, seeing my parents laugh at movies or my dad uh, would always tell stories. And so. Yeah. Cause you're one of what? Seven seven children. That's wild. Yeah. So I think like, comedy was just something that I always liked. I didn't know that there were careers in comedy necessarily, but Mm -hmm. I I did always like it. And then I did a variety show my senior year in high school with some friends where you make fun of the teachers and we got to write sketches, rehearse them. And there was a woman in the theater department who ran the show and she was very like, you're actually good at this. You should think about this. And that was like the first time I felt like reinforced because I was always like class clown and could be counted on for being sort of disruptive or it was a way for me to get my attention and my identity out sure. in, in, in various settings. And sometimes to my detriment, like I was not a great student in high school because I was doing a lot of attention seeking pranks and mischief, mm-hmm. et cetera. So, but the variety show was really the first formalized like performance rehearsal and then writing and creating something and then using it in front of an audience or delivering it in front of an audience and then seeing it succeed was really powerful. And then of course the adoration you get in the hallways after those shows is pretty unique as well. So I think that was the beginning seed. And then in college, I didn't really pursue it for various reasons. I, I think probably didn't have the courage to go full into mm. it or 
didn't know what was on the other side of it. But ultimately, at the end of college, I started taking improv classes. I took one acting class in college, and that was like one of my only. I was like a business major, then a liberal arts, then a psych major. So I wanted oh. to be I wanted to be a psychologist. So right after college, really? I, yeah. So I wanted to get a job in psychology. So I worked on a psych floor right out of college. And at night I was doing sketch with these guys that I had met in my improv class in Chicago. Yeah. And then at some point I realized that I had to just do one of them. And uh, <laughs> comedy was, the stakes were much lower. Like psychology is <laughs> pretty heavy duty. So, But they do feel like they... I'm also fascinated by psychology. I, I know I can't ever be a therapist. I think that that's too far reaching for me. But I do think that therapists are kind of like superheroes. And I do think those are really complementary avenues to study like the human condition. And that filters and fuels kind of an ability to find comedy in it. Yeah, I think listening is is a big part of a good therapist and recognizing the patterns of you know destructive behavior. Uh, I don't know. People always say like, they always assume like, oh, psychology is a great companion for like comedy. I don't mm -hmm. know that I consciously draw on it, but I guess any background or any specialization that gives you a foundation of information and approach to something is interesting. Mm -hmm. you know? I actually did a research paper my senior year, which with like rats and things like that. Whoa. And then, yeah. And then uh, there was another one about perfection. You know the game perfection where you have uh, those little cubes that are like a triangle and a circle yes. and a square? Yeah. So it's like a time trial. And I took like 50 college students from the psych department and I tried to see who learned to learn better. And what it, in my little study, women were better at learning to learn. In other words, their successive trials, they got better, better, better. They, they found organizational systems inside this little trial. Like if I gave everybody wow. three... If I, if I gave everyone three trials, you would see a more increased shaving of time from the female like subjects as opposed to the men. Interesting. So that was like one of the things that I took away from that. But that, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. Do you ever or would you ever consider going back into psychology in any capacity? I guess I would if it was like... Someone said, we need a therapist and I'll set up all the classes for you and you can... You just have to show up. Just start showing up and I'll, I'll walk you. Like I would need like an advisor and a mentor and someone to like teach me what classes I needed to take. Like but pursuing it on my own, I just don't have the drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do, I am fascinated by it. A friend of mine is going through his psych degree and... Uh, I took some grad school classes in it, but I, I'm always asking you, like, what are you studying? I do find yeah. it interesting. Yeah. Well, okay. So that's been in the background, but then comedy and the arts stuck for you. Was that taking improv classes and then just kind of like feeling the bug, feeling the sort of addictive quality of it for yourself? Yeah, I think it is. One is like that hit that a crackhead or a heroin addict has where you're, where you're in a class and you, I remember the moment I was doing like an improvised scene with someone mm. in a level two at a place called Players Workshop. And we were able to sustain a comedic scene for like three minutes and have the class engaged and laughing. And it was going on stage without any concept of what the scene was about and then sustaining that and then getting, you know, that reinforcement. Uh, 
was amazing. Yeah. And so that was like something I was chasing for a long time. That improv comedy sketch sort of uh, was amazing to me. Yeah, it, it is truly. Um, there's a sense of like magic powers almost of this like control of this able this like godlike creation that I've made something from absolutely nothing and it is providing a service to people in some capacity. Um, yeah, it, and it's like a magic trick. Like in yeah. a, without an audience, it probably wouldn't be as amazing. Yeah, you know. That's very true. Because <laughs> laughter <laughs> justifies why you're doing it, like hearing the laughter. But it is that. I agree. It is, it is sort of a miraculous godlike quality you can conjure up with someone who's equally interested and trained and supportive. Yeah. I mean, so you've founded improv theaters. You've worked in this capacity for so long. Was there a point in which you had to limit the amount of performance and involvement that you were doing in that world? Well, was it always kind of consistently like this is part of my creative DNA in some capacity? I think for a long time it was. I think there was sort of like a pickup mentality to doing like a once a week show or a couple mm -hmm. times a month just to get your... Uh, to get some laughs and to stay sharp and it, it does keep the creative juices flowing. So I did like being able to drop into a regular comedic show once a week, but as I've sort of gotten out of that habit, really since the pandemic came, I don't know that I miss it. Like I do miss it, but I don't know that I'll structure my life in a way where I'll have that once a week show again, because there's part of me that knows that you sort of age out of improv. Like mm. I do think it is a young person's game. Uh, oh, certainly the audiences, there's a generational gap, which I always talk to the audience, even the other performers. Like there was a time when we were all sort of the same age. Now yeah. I feel like I'm always the oldest person on stage, which is great, <laughs> but it's, it's a perspective. Just, it is a perspective. Sure. <laughs> but it's also like cultural references, like comedy yeah. is steeped in like cultural references and concerns of yeah. younger people. And so it's okay. Like, and I also enjoy being home with my family on a Sunday night, as opposed to getting in the car and going down, you know, <laughs> you so, chickens that need you now. My, my, my human chickens <laughs> and then my chicken chickens need me as well as our two dogs. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you, you think of it as a young person's kind of um, playground a little bit because it does. I guess I've never thought about that capacity before. And it does seem very true that it does rely on being kind of tapped into some cultural pulse that I think is much more accessible when you're younger. And that's your only concern is understanding what's happening in the world in real time constantly. And I do think, yeah, life starts to create avenues that you actually need to care about and, uh, you know, little things that you need to keep alive <laughs> outside of the comedy world. I'm curious when you moved a little bit away from that and we get into this like veep category now and you're, you're doing more of a still playful and comedic world, but more structured. Was there any, uh, like, how was that experience for you going into a show like that and then it taking off in such a capacity and having such an impact culturally? 
And I know that you have a podcast now where you're rewatching all of it. So I'm curious <laughs> if now going back and watching it is something you wanted to do. And uh, uh, second to that, what the experience of looking back on it is for you. Well, it's funny the the, the V podcast came up during the pandemic because it was mm-hmm. like something we could do during the pandemic, sure, but it yeah. took so long to like get it in motion. And so, uh, so that's where that impetus came from. And Tim and I are, have been friends for a long time. So we enjoy like, you know, goofing around or doing bits or et cetera. So it's been fun to do. Um, but being on a show like Veep is, is, it is a remarkable ride. There's no, I've been on many shows that I think are quality comedy, but they don't necessarily get the reception or the exposure or the support mm-hmm. or the cultural like significance or, or praise, if you will. And Veep is one of those rare shows that it was an amazing cast, stupendous writing, and also the attention, you know, of the culture was was concerned about what we were doing yeah. and engaged with it. So that is a rare ride indeed. So that was magnificent. Like you, you just don't know uh, if you're ever going to land in something like that. And uh, and doing the podcast where I go back and rewatch Veep, what I'm learning is, is that when you're an actor inside a show, you're so myopic about your lines and your scene, even then when you watch it, like, I, of course, I watched every, ep- I'm not a fan of watching myself too much. Well, I'm that like, was, all right, that's enough. Yeah, that was going to be my other question. I have a very difficult time. There's a difference, I think, between like nostalgia, the idea of it versus actually looking at it yeah. and like confronting yeah. yourself with yourself yeah like if you went back and watched some of your episodes of this show you would oh, probably I cringe I, right and i don't know exactly i've been trying to figure out why and i it's so interesting to hear that you have that instinct too and i'm curious like if you know why that comes up for you well i think there's like vanity like we focus on like oh my god i look old yeah. and there's also like <laughs> As an actor or an artist, you're like, oh, I could improve that, or that's yeah. not the best take, yeah. or like, ah, I could have done that better, or that. And then there's also like just ego in general, like you're like looking at the show and hoping you come off well. Mm-hmm. So there's all these like insecurities or human qualities that I think interfere with an objective viewing of anything which is normal like it's not like uh it's not a flaw it's just how people are yeah so having some years behind it now and going back into veep i totally appreciate the show like a fan like i'm not so engaged about like oh my god i look fat or like oh i could have done that better <laughs> or, like geez i i wish i would have like you know whatever there's no like regret or like kind of defense mechanism being triggered i just watch it as a fan and I can let go of a lot of that stuff. And so that's been a real joy. And like the realization of like all the wonderful things that are in that show, like it's a true appreciation as a fan. And it's just an interesting sort of uh, experiment really to go through something like that and, and to be able to like enjoy it and then talk about it and also discover memories around it from other people that we bring on the show. You're like, Oh my God, I forgot that. Or like we did shoot that scene and they never used it. Like, it's just like, that's the nostalgia part of it. It brings you back to a certain time and place. And it's also a memory sharpener because we're not trusted narrators. Like ultimately we're not built, we're not built as human beings to like retell events mm-hmm. that uh, happened years ago because we, we have the way they're encoded. 
uh, isn't precise. And also like there's emotional things that need to trigger them, or sometimes we hide them because they are emotional. So ultimately you realize like when you sit across from somebody who's in the same episode and on the same show and you listen to their experience and it's like, Oh yeah, that was, that was it. That's kind of how I watch the show. It's like, coming at me it's like technicolor now and it's like so beautiful and wonderful it's like all these things i couldn't realize because i was like an actor memorizing my lines and like trying to get it right and like seeing the story through that character's eyes but once you can relax and just watch it it's it's great like it's a wonderful show that's very cool yeah that you get the freedom to zoom out and like appreciate all the things that you couldn't see in the moment very cool Yeah. yeah Um, okay, we're gonna take a quick break. When we get back, I'm so interested in um, your new feature unplugging uh, as it relates to all social media stuff. So we'll be right back with more Not Too Deep. Hello, listeners. Grace Helbig here. Wanting to say two things. A big thank you for listening to the podcast. Uh, If you're a regular listener, if this is your first time listening, welcome and thank you. And uh, second thing, if you are enjoying yourself here in this not-too-deep world we've built and you'd like to leave us a review, that would be so wonderful. If you can go to the iTunes store, the App Store, and leave us a lovely little review comment. How are you feeling? Good? Bad? Otherwise? Maybe just good or otherwise would be appreciated. Other than that, enjoy the podcast. You've really taken to the chickens. I'm fascinated. That's your favorite part of my life. It is, I think, a very interesting detail of your life. I think it's very fascinating because to me, I have no experience with chickens, but they seem, you know, they require a certain level of attention and delicacy and like uh, gentleness and concern that uh, for having kids and a dog to add chickens to it. I'm just like fascinated. Well, one, it it is an experiment that I was able to fold my kids into. And my daughter has continued to sort of help me with them. And two, I think it is like in a world gone crazy where nobody's in control. And we're like, I I don't know how long this is going to last. I don't know what's going on with the world. You feel like, well, at the very least I can grow eggs (laughs) and my family will have it. You know what I mean? It gives you some sort of agency. Totally. In the way that like we might grow herbs in our garden or like make sourdough. Like there are all these things or start knitting. Well, at the very least, We'll have clothing, you know. I think there is a huge sense of independence there that like you can survive in a certain situation that I don't have for myself. So that's why I'm like fascinated by it that I'm like, I know I could probably run away if I needed to, but I couldn't get eggs for myself readily available. You didn't pick up a... uh hobby or anything during the pandemic nothing i tried to knit a little bit i thought about the bread scenario very often i got way more into watching reality television as a survival mechanism um so that's (laughs) if anyone needs commentary on the real housewives i will live forever (laughs) if that is my life force that's funny um i'm curious too with the with your children do they have a, an understanding of, of what you do? Do they uh, fully understand or appreciate it? I think sometimes, yeah, they do. They've seen a couple things I've done, mm-hmm. you know, uh, TV or movies. They don't watch Veep. It's a little, they could, the older ones could watch Veep now, but I don't sure. think they're very interested in it yet. 
which is perfectly fine. And I think it's, it's occasionally marked by like people saying, you know, if we're out to dinner, like, Oh my God, can I get a picture? Like, so they've seen recognition of my fame or my public life Mm -hmm. in addition to their friends watching a movie or TV show and telling them, Oh my God, I saw your dad on TV. So they, I think they appreciate what I do and they have certainly been to the theater with me to, you know, to see shows and we're doing, we do like a month or a a holiday show every year, which we're going to try to do again. So they've sort of been part of the theater family. Do they have interest in the arts? And if they start to cultivate that, is that something that is exciting for you? Concerns you? Um, I guess it concerns me. Both my wife and I are actors, so Mm -hmm. we know how, hard it can be to be rejected and tie your, you know, when you're, when you're an actor and you're getting rejection, it's sort of overly uh, uh, powerful perhaps because yeah. it's who you are. So the reje- it's not like you're doing an accounting thing and you're handing it to someone and they're like, I don't like these numbers do it again. It's like, yeah, I don't your like, math is wrong. Yeah. yeah. I don't like who you are. This whole thing you're bringing. <laughs> this we thing don't that like you've, it. You've worked on every yeah. second that you're awake every day. Yeah, no, this, this whole gestalt you're bringing into the room, not a fan. So learning to separate yourself from that is something you can do when you get older, but and when you're younger. So that's the concern part of it is sure. like making sure, but our middle, our middle guy is very funny and talented and he's, they've expressed interest in, you know, voiceover and things like that. So we'll see oh, where it um, goes. Like if what I would love, if any of your listeners, if they know like a good theater in the Valley, that's looking for hey. kids to audition for a play, I'd love to get them into a play first so they can see, mm. cause I like the team sport aspect of theater yeah. where you have to, people rely on you. And like, I don't want it to necessarily go right to like, getting an agent and a manager and getting a, a voiceover on a cartoon. I want to, I yeah. want the, like the whole experience. Yeah. Seeing all the pieces of it. And there's uh, it fosters community too, that you really yeah. feel like you're part of the system that has to work together. Yeah. Very exactly cool. right. Exactly right. Um, speaking of systems, let's talk about unplugging this um, film is basically you and your wife uh, go away to do a digital detox. Correct. How did this project come up? Uh, How did this happen? A buddy of mine, Brad Morris, and I just wrote the concept of like, it started with like the concept of like a soft apocalypse. It's almost like (laughs) everything doesn't go to shit, but like you can't get Wi-Fi and your phone is spotty. And so from that, we just wrote a story about a, a couple who, because we all are addicted to screens, whether we admit it or not. Oh, hugely. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a marriage or a relationship where there's some issues that they're not dealing with. And it's a symptom. The fact that they're both sort of so addicted, even their daughter to screens is a symptom of like, we need to like unplug and mm-hmm. investigate who we are when we're not around these things. So they go to a remote location where there's no Wi-Fi, no signal. And because they're so addicted, they don't know what to do with themselves at first. And then at some point, they get freaked out that the whole world's ending and that the Chinese have hacked the electrical grid. And so they go off into the woods. So, But on that journey, in general, they are able to unpack a couple of things that they weren't dealing with in their marriage. Like a couple, mm. not sec- I guess they're secrets in a classic theatrical sense. Like, this really bugged me and this was terrible and... I don't know where you are and, you know, those kind of moments. 
It's very interesting to me because it feels obviously hyper relevant right now. I think especially uh, in the pandemic of it all, our only reliance has been on this form of communication, this form of connection, this form of uh, it's distraction, whatever it might be. I'm curious, like, um, what your personal relationship is with like social media and, uh, you know, internet, all that kind of jazz. I'm a bit of a dinosaur, quite honestly. (laughs) Like I really am like social media is all outgoing. Yeah. Mostly like I promote things that I like or friends things. I'll promote those things. Uh, social causes. I'll throw things out into the universe projects. I'm involved that are raising money for cause. So it's all outward going, but I don't scroll to see what people are up to every day. I don't at all. And I oftentimes have my assistant, like, can you post this for me? Cause I just, I don't know how to do a story. I don't know how to do an Instagram (laughs) story. Like I don't know how to do half of it. And then the other side of it is our kids like, you know, TikTok and Mm -hmm. trying to police that and, it's all fine. Like it's not inherently evil, but it is time wasting in a way that like for a young mind that's developing, we're constantly like trying to set boundaries and keep them off of like social media where like, you know, adult things happen. It's like, just go slower. Just, just preserve a little innocence. You don't need to be exposed to the whole world when you're 12 or 14 or feel the pressure to have followers at that age. So Mm -hmm. I think we're doing an okay job, but ultimately like, I'm sure our kids spend way too much time on screens. I mean, it's uh, it's so difficult. Like a half of, well, the majority of my adolescence was without the internet and the internet was created in that like moment. And so how do we even compare being born into a world where the internet is immediately available versus not? Like there's no blueprint on... I'm fascinated by the psychology of like kids raised with internet uh, as adults, what's going to happen with the byproduct of all of that, because it is, uh, it's a difficult thing to process. Like you said, having the entire world in your hand available to you at any moment of the day. Yeah, Wild. it's exactly right. And you, your general concern is just to preserve a little innocence or just to go a little slower. And I didn't get a phone till I was like 31, I think. Like the, uh-huh. the cell phone yeah. entered my life at the age of 31. So that's the generation I am, yeah. you know? And these kids, by the same token, I took great pride in their ability to like navigate technology because it's not going away. Like right. my, my son at the age of five was like playing some game where he could like Tom Cruise and minority report, like stroke, <laughs> key, play, turn, click, like yeah. his, his dexterity. I'm like, oh, he'll survive in the future world. You know, like yeah. part of me does take pride that they are understanding technology and they know how to use it. but. A lot of those things, they develop quickly. Like you don't need to spend a hundred hours to get that. You can spend five hours and get that. You know totally. what I mean? Like after a while, it's just repetitive, like TikTok funny, like TikTok. <laughs> like after a while, you're not really building a skill set. So. Yeah. Well, is that kind of the takeaway that you want audiences to have with unplugging? Like, is there kind of that sort of messaging of like the over-reliance on it? Way to keep me on task. Thank you, Grace. Way to <laughs> keep my me only focused. Job. This is unplugging. No, this is about unplugging the movie. Creating with a Eva framework. Longoria. Yes. It's a wonderful comedy. <laughs> Ultimately, it's a comedy. Right. It's truly a comedy about like how addicted we are to screens, mm-hmm. how they can be an impediment to a marriage, 
how like nature always wins. Like if you get into nature, it just resets you. It's like biorhythms and everything just clicks in. Mm. So it's about that. And it's about like, I don't think it's like a brave new world. Like we're scaring people in any way. I think it's just like a relatable story of like these people go away for a weekend with no cell phone, no Wi-Fi. Yeah. And they get so paranoid. They think like the Chinese have taken over the West Coast. Like, what does that say about our, our lifestyle? Yeah. Ultimately, you know, but it's also like engaging a little bit with, you know, nature and putting things away, like creating boundaries like, a, you yeah. know, that's that's sort of what, what we learned. But it's straight up just a comedy. It's like hopefully funny the whole way through. I play a ridiculous guy who thinks he's crushing it by making hot sauce in his garage so he's got <laughs> he's got dance devil sauce and he thinks he's an entrepreneur Perfect. but really he came out of an advertising job that didn't pan out he was supposed mm. to keep keep climbing and he's basically kind of licking his wounds a little got too it. long okay. so then in the meantime his wife played by eva jumps into this other career and she's like crushing it but she's kind of like gone a whole other direction and so now he sort of stay at home so it's been this reversal mm. which they haven't really established but also like he needs to get his shit together and then she needs to maybe tone it down a little bit. You know what I mean? So oh, they need to meet yeah. in a way. And, and so that's kind of what's underneath it all is, is, is that. And, and, and I think going into the rural part of the story, which we filmed it during COVID, which was a miracle, like nothing bad happened. Nobody got wow. COVID, but it was like a simple story where they go to the remote wilderness and going to these remote places, as you know, People who don't engage with all different likes of people can preserve a point of view on the world. So it's mm-hmm. also about that. Yeah. Like you tend to get more conspiracy theorists or more like odd prejudices, let's say, when you get to remote regions, simply because they're not bumping into a variety of life in a, yeah. in a simple way. So we yeah, sort yeah. of get into that a little bit, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I feel like it's hyper relevant right now because everyone does, I think, have that fear or curiosity in the back of their brain that if I woke up and my Wi-Fi didn't work tomorrow, could I get in my car and know where to drive without a GPS signal? <laughs> like uh, all of these like small things that make you feel a little bit uh, weak or inferior or like completely incapable as like a human being in the world. Well, one of our producers, Debbie Liebling, who's, who's an awesome producer, she won't look at her screen time usage on her phone because she's like constantly multitasking. She is afraid of looking at it. She will never look at it. Have you done that? uh, I have thought about it. I have not engaged with it because I don't want to be that confronted with uh, my truth. But I have friends that will put limitations on their phone like um you know i can all the i guess there's things in your phone where you can literally say i'm i have to my phone will shut off this app after two hours of use but they reach that period by like noon and realize that they have to restructure their actual limitations (laughs) because it's not actually working for them and there's a bit it's a bit devastating to kind of be confronted with that um i'm also curious because the I'm project- going right now. Go to your phone. Come on. I say I don't want Come to on. because Come I, on. I don't I, want to for I don't know you <sighs> that well, but it's going to be awful. I play Scrabble Go literally all day long. I so, play a little bit with my mom. I, I'm four, me too. I'm four hours, seven. Oh, you do? Isn't that a neat thing to I stay know. in touch with your mom? I play over the pandemic. We started getting into playing Scrabble Go with each other. And I think it's very sweet and cute. I sometimes have to let her win, but 
Uh, otherwise, on. it's very, very fun. Uh, highly recommend it. But that's going to fuck up all of my screen time. It's going to throw everything off. Come on, look at it. I, just okay. at my, I haven't looked at mine in months. What's your average? Four hours, seven minutes on average, I okay. think is what it says. Five hours, 38 minutes. Which honestly isn't as bad as I thought it would at? be. Gorgeous. Um, that's not okay. crazy. It's not crazy. I I'm glad that's I, crazy. I ripped the bandaid uh, right. and I'll work on that. Um, Thank you okay. for going there with me. <sighs> Thank you for getting me to be vulnerable. I work on this in therapy and it's nice to practice it in the real world. <laughs> no, no. Okay, I'm actually going to skip ahead to the two questions. This is what we'll wrap up with that I ask every single guest that is on the podcast. Um, the first question I ask is, who, alive or dead, would you most like to throw cold spaghetti at? What? <laughs> um... And this is something that is truly individualized of your intention. Uh, you can have a person in mind that is your answer for right now, but this is an answer that can constantly evolve and change over time. I feel like I want to go between it. It goes between like Galileo or <laughs> like Astropithecus, like a caveman who wouldn't understand our food. <laughs> like to throw a meal like that at a caveman and have them like eat yeah. it and understand that it's delicious. And also with Galileo, I feel like he would probably give me some scientific explanation of how it traveled and hit him. <laughs> Either way, I would like to watch the learning curve of both of those moments. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay. The other question I ask every single guest is to tell us uh, your worst pants shitting story. Or like a bathroom emergency situation. However, you can only use three words or like small phrases to describe the event. Um, and for example, mine is college jogging front lawn. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I thought you were frozen for a second. I was like, oh, no, not again. <laughs> uh forewarned diarrhea second grade that's four <laughs> words but i mean it's a beautiful poem is what you just made <laughs> forewarned diarrhea second grade <laughs> yeah, it also sounds like a weird dido song or something <laughs> matt i appreciate so much this conversation and thank you for being so patient with the technical difficulties uh before we let you go we like to give a token of our appreciation to each guest by giving them a personalized horoscope that we have written for you uh that melissa just put in the chat if you'd like to read it aloud <gasps> who who uh created it uh uh our <laughs> writer that works on the show okay <laughs> So is, is it, before I read it, mm -hmm. is it just because of the day and time or whatever I was born, or is it related to my profession and my history as a performer or, you know what I mean? It's a bit of a combination. Uh, we understand that you're a Libra based on your birth date. Um, so it's a bit of that as an inspiration, but then facilitated into a more personalized 
um, statement based on your life experience. Thank you. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Dear Libra, scales of the stars. Expect Venus to form a conjunction with Pluto and Capricorn this weekend. I still don't know what it means, good or bad. Mm. <laughs> this is the time to come up with new family traditions for the holidays. Mm. I like that. And by new, we do not mean forcing your whole family to watch Chicago Pair highlights on ESPN Classic. Penny doesn't care. Oh, my God. <laughs> How do you know I have a dog named Penny? I mean, it's in the stars, apparently. Oh, my it, God. <laughs> the universe. Penny was on camera for a moment. She's the best. She is bouncing around back there. Yeah, she's got she's lots of energy. Yes. Uh, well, I hope that your holiday I that. traditions. I love a family, tra- a new family tradition. We still haven't gotten our tree, so there's plenty of time to start traditions. Plenty of time. Um, Matt, where can people listen to the podcast Second in Command? And where can they see Unplugging, potentially? Uh, Unplugging will be coming out in the spring of next year in like okay. eight, ten cities and also on digital uh, platforms. And then the Second in Command podcast is on, if you go to Cast Media, Dot com you can find it there or anywhere you listen to podcasts second in command i'm sure you can find it amazing well thank yeah. you again so much this was such a lovely conversation yeah it was very delightful as well on my side oh great and guys go check out everything that he's up to and um if you see anything that he posts online know it's either from him or a directive from his assistant yes uh, <laughs> that is absolutely true and we'll see you guys next time on another episode of not too deep goodbye too deep too deep too deep not too deep with Grace Helbig. Not too deep is a production of Grace Helbig Incorporated. Producer Melissa D. Montz, edited by Shireen Lani Yunus. Post production sound by Chris Henry, and an extra special thanks to Flula for the theme music. Mm-hmm.